Dear Father, please be with us just now as we go through the book of Galatians, an extremely important book which discusses how are we put right with you, how are we set right, and how do we balance being put right through trust compared with doing all of the many things that you've commanded us to do. So please help us to see things more clearly just now. Amen. All right, now... This is an interesting book, and the way it starts out, remember, we just finished uh, Corinthians, and uh, Paul just said, you know, we're to speak the truth in love. Uh, We have the great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, and um, in Romans, we read where Paul was now of the conviction that even about something like the day of worship, we don't condemn people. Let everyone be fully persuaded in their own mind. Okay, so we get all this settled in, that that's the way it works, and we come to admire that things are that way. And then Paul opens up the book of Galatians this way. I am surprised at you. In no time at all you are deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are accepting another gospel. Actually, there is no other gospel. But I say this because there are some people who are upsetting you and trying to change the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven... What a strong statement. Even an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel that is different from the one we preach to you. May he be condemned to hell. Okay, now about the day of worship, let everyone be fully persuaded in their own mind. But about the gospel, may he be condemned to hell. Now, um, Okay, we kind of read along. But I mean, just imagine if, uh, if I stood up here and told you all about the gospel and then said, now if anyone tells you anything differently, may he be condemned to hell. And what would you think about that? But Paul uh, feels so strongly about this uh, relative to everything else that he could say, boy, about the good news, if there's any distortion about that, this, this is serious. May he be condemned to hell. Now, what's interesting here is if we, as we've tried at every opportunity to discuss what is the good news, that the good news is about God. The good news is that God is just like Jesus in character. The good news is how gracious and kind God is. And uh, so Paul would seem to be saying, boy, if, if anyone distorts that message, I mean, that is the essence of the Christian message. And notice, it's interesting here, or an angel from heaven. And we think about who was the first person to ever preach a distortion of what God is like. I mean, look at what Satan did at the tree. To Eve, God is an untrustworthy liar. Look what he did in heaven. All distortions, misrepresentations of who God is. All right. So even if a great, brilliant angel from heaven comes and tells you something that's untrue about God and specifically that distorts what God is like in character, that's extremely serious. Now, I'm skipping to the end of the book because Paul is talking about these people who are distorting the gospel. And he said... As for the rumor that I continue to preach the ways of circumcision, as I did in those pre-Damascus Road days, that is absurd. Why would I still be persecuted then? If I were preaching that old message, no one would be offended if I mentioned the cross now and then. It would be so watered down, it wouldn't matter one way or the other. And as we'll go back and fill in all the pieces, um, Paul here chooses circumcision to contrast. He has just said in all the way through in his books that the good news about what God is like, that that wins us to love him, to trust him. And if we love God, trust him. And we're really looking at the true God who's just like Jesus. That's all God asks. All right, now he is meeting with fierce resistance 
from people who have been accustomed for centuries to getting right with God by keeping the list. All right? And so there are people now who are more concerned about circumcision. I mean, we just witnessed God in the flesh for three and a half years doing all these things, allowing his children to crucify him. He's resurrected. And there are people more concerned about circumcision than talking about what God is like. And uh, this is such a distortion. And you can read this in any version. It comes out more clear in the Message Bible, but this is exactly the meaning. Here's how Paul feels about those people. Why don't these agitators, obsessive as they are about circumcision, go all the way and castrate themselves? Um, any version, that is really what he said. It's, this is so horrible. May they be condemned to hell, and I wish they would just go all the way and let the knife slip in their obsession about uh, circumcision. All right, now let's go back and let's try to see if we can understand uh, the issues here. But, but first of all, just to come back, why would Paul feel so strong about the gospel? Well, we said in Romans that Paul, he's not ashamed about the gospel. It is God's power for salvation. How does the gospel save anyone? Well, we talked about this, but the good news about what God is like, this is, what, this is God's force in winning us, his great love revealed primarily through his life and death. This is the power for salvation. And notice, what does it stimulate? Trust. And in 1 Corinthians, and now I want to remind you, my friends, of the good news which I preached to you, which you received, and in which your faith, your trust stands. Our trust stands on what God is like, the good news. That is the gospel, the message that I preached to you. You are saved by the gospel. Now, it's interesting, God saves, right? But we're saved by the gospel if you hold firmly to it. We hold firmly to the truth about what God is like in character. And then in Romans, we read this last time, let us give glory to God. He's able to make you stand firm in your faith. Okay, what makes our trust stand firm? According to the good news. The good news is everything because it reveals what God is like. And so this is the most serious thing to distort and to misrepresent. So coming back here to Galatians, and just it's kind of interesting, historically, Paul has this 17-year journey here leading up to a discussion with the disciples where he is authorized to spread the message to the Gentiles. And so we'll just go through this quickly. Let me tell you, my friends, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any human being, nor did anyone teach it to me. It was Jesus Christ himself who revealed it to me. You have been told how I used to live when I was devoted to the Jewish religion, how I persecuted without mercy the church of God and did my best to destroy it. I was ahead of most other Jews of my age in my practice of the Jewish religion and was much more devoted to the traditions of our ancestors. Immediately after my calling, without consultation, anyone around me and without going up to Jerusalem to confer with those who were apostles long before I was, I got away to Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. But it was three years before I went up to Jerusalem to compare stories with Peter. I was there only 15 days, but what days they were. Except for our master's brother James, I saw no other apostles. I'm telling you the absolute truth in this. And then I began my ministry in the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Fourteen years later, it's kind of interesting, I went back to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went because God revealed to me that I should go. In a private meeting with the leaders, I explained the gospel message that I preach to the Gentiles. My companion Titus, even though he is Greek, all right, so he's a Gentile, was not forced to be circumcised, although some wanted it done. Pretending to be believers, 
these men slipped into our group as spies in order to find out about the freedom we have through our union with Jesus Christ. What do you think they were trying to find out? whole subject here is circumcision. What would they be sent as spies to find out? Well, they came to find out whether Titus was circumcised or not. Now, just imagine here, you're a spy to try to find out if someone is circumcised or not. And, uh, you know, how would you try to, to slip in and to, to discover if that were the case? Because this is such a big deal. Okay, it's amazing. They wanted to make slaves of us. But in order to keep the truth of the gospel safe for you, we did not give in to them for a minute. Okay, so that's his first example here in this discussion about the distortion of the good news. So these people who are more interested in, in this kind of a get right with God by keeping the commands. And now he goes on to give another example. Later when Peter came to Antioch, I had a face-to-face -face confrontation with him because he was clearly out of line. Now you ever think about these disciples and apostles um, how they got along. But here's the situation. Earlier, before certain persons had come from James, Peter regularly ate with the non-Jews. But when that conservative group came from Jerusalem, he cautiously pulled back and put as much distance as he could manage between himself and his non-Jewish friends. He's two-faced. That's how fearful he was of the conservative Jewish clique that's been pushing the old system of circumcision. Unfortunately, the rest of the Jews in Antioch the church joined in that hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was swept away in the charade. You can always tell when it's the Message Bible, right? But it just, th this was the, the Message Bible, uh, Eugene Peterson, Galatians was the, was the first book that he did. And this is such a wonderful uh, translation of this book in terms of uh, getting to the meaning, in my opinion. But when I saw that they were not maintaining a steady, straight course according to the message or according to the gospel, I spoke up to Peter in front of them all. If you, a Jew, live like a non-Jew when you're not being observed by the watchdogs from Jerusalem, what right do you have to require non-Jews to conform to Jewish customs just to make a favorable impression on your old Jerusalem cronies? Okay, so again, when he's with the Gentiles here, he's living one way, but when the, the more conservative Jews would come along, he would treat them in a, in a completely different way. Manner. And it's interesting to think about, remember the vision that Peter had in Acts where the unclean animals came down and he was told to eat? And, you know, if you're told something by God to do, but no, Peter felt so strongly about this, no, I can't do that, it's unclean. It kept coming down. And the message was, um, hey, these Gentiles, you need to look at them in a different way. All right, so Paul confronts him publicly to his face and tells him uh, that what he's doing is not right. He goes on, yet we know that people don't receive God's approval because of their own efforts to live according to a set of standards, but only by believing in Jesus Christ. Uh, it, it's so many times in all of Paul's writings. How are we set right? Remember, believe, faith, trust, one Greek word. So it's we are set right by trusting, believing in Jesus. Of course, Satan believes in Jesus, his existence. Okay, so it involves much more than that. It's trusting in Jesus. So we also believed in Jesus Christ in order to receive God's approval by faith in Christ and not because of our own efforts. People won't receive God's approval because of their own efforts to live according to a set of standards. And again, this is what he is fighting against. This is not how we're put right with God. 
Okay, again, slipping back into the Message Bible, which is so clear in this passage. We know very well that we are not set right with God by rule-keeping, but only through personal faith in Jesus Christ. How do we know? We tried it, and we had the best system of rules the world has ever seen. Convinced that no human being can please God by self-improvement, we believed in Jesus as the Messiah so that we might be set right before God by trusting in the Messiah, not by trying to be good. Have some of you noticed that we're not yet perfect? No great surprise, right? And are you ready to make the accusation that since people like me who go through Christ in order to get things right with God aren't perfectly virtuous, Christ must therefore be an accessory to sin? The accusation is frivolous. If I was trying to be good, I would be rebuilding the same old barn that I tore down. I would be acting as a charlatan. What actually took place is this. I tried keeping the rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. Remember, he was working his head off so hard that he was going around imprisoning the early Christians, persecuting them, working very hard. So I quit being a lawman so that I could be God's man. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It's no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. And I am no longer driven to impress God. That's interesting. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but it is lived by my faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm not going to go back on that. Is it not clear to you that to go back to that old rule-keeping, peer-pleasing religion would be an abandonment of everything personal and free in my relationship with God? I refuse to do that, to repudiate God's grace. If a living relationship with God could come by rule-keeping, then Christ died unnecessarily. Trust in Christ, not the law. And this point could be made so many times. What does Jesus say when he comes back? To those who don't enter the kingdom, go away, I never knew you. And we've discussed so many times to know in the Bible. It's a trusting relationship based on a true knowledge of God's character. And remember the people who don't enter the kingdom, what do they say? Lord, Lord, we did so many works in your name. Okay, but again, they don't, they don't know God. There is no relationship that is there. They don't know the truth about what he's like. All right, so he sums up this passage here by saying, you foolish Galatians, who put a spell on you? Before your very eyes, you had a clear description of the death of Jesus on the cross. Tell me this one thing. Did you receive God's spirit by doing what the law requires or by hearing the gospel and believing it? And I think we could even put in today's words by reading the gospel and believing it. Because remember then, they didn't have Bibles. You went to church and you heard it read to you. And of course, this could be preaching as well. But we read what God is like. We read the Bible to uncover what God is like in character. And if we're one to trust in him, that's what he asks. How can you be so foolish? You began by God's spirit. Do you now want to finish by your own power? Did all your experience mean nothing at all? Surely it meant something. Does God give you the spirit and work miracles among you because you do what the law requires or because you hear the gospel and believe it? Do you respond to the good news? Okay, now, here there's kind of a natural question which Paul's going to get to, which in his audience is, well, if all God wants is that we trust him, we come to know what he is like, we enter into a relationship, then why are there so many rules? That's a natural question. So he's going to come to that. And so he gives an example. 
Consider the experience of Abraham. Okay, and now the people reading this who would say, no, it is about the rules. That's what we've been taught all along. Now they're going to say, okay, Abraham, good. He's, he's a man of our example. He was circumcised. All right, so what does Paul say? As the scripture says, he believed God, trusted God, and because of his faith, because of his trust, God accepted him as righteous. And Paul didn't just make that up. It's right here in Genesis. Abraham put his trust in the Lord, and because of this, the Lord was pleased with him and accepted him. Abraham trusted God. He was called God's friend, and that's all God required. And we didn't really go through this when we went through Romans, but in Romans, Paul makes the point, did, was this before or after circumcision? It's before circumcision. Okay, Abraham trusted God. God said, that's good. That's what I want. And the circumcision came later as a sign that he was in a trusting relationship with God. And what Paul is trying to make the point now is, now there's something else that replaces circumcision here in Romans. For he is not a real Jew who is only one outwardly and publicly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And true circumcision is of the heart, a spiritual and not a literal matter. Okay, what is the sign that you are a Christian? And we'll go through this in 1 John, but it is that we love one another. We have the law written on the heart. That is the contemporary circumcision. It's, it's an internal thing. Jesus' command, I give you a new command, love one another. Okay, there was a physical circumcision, but now there is a law written on the heart, circumcision. That's what Paul is trying to uh, lead people toward. Okay, so now he answers the question. All right, if that's all God asks, why the law? What then was the purpose of the law? And he says very clearly, it was added in order to show what wrongdoing is. Okay, and he's going to go through now and explain the law and several other versions of this. What is the use of the law? It was given later to show that we sin. Or what then is the purpose of the laws given to Moses? They were added to identify what wrongdoing is. Now, there's an interesting discussion, controversy, sometimes argument um, in Christianity and in the Seventh Adventist Church, but what law was added? Was it the Ten Commandments? Was it the other ceremonial law? Was it all law? And uh, maybe we'll discuss this a little bit and we can come to a conclusion. What law was added? Well, here's an example here. Now, these are my two sons. Now, when they are happy and getting along and harmonious and treating each other with love and respect, are there lots of rules and laws? No, not too many, okay? But when they are uh, somewhat rebellious and disobedient and naughty, then, then what? They come laws right away, right? To bring them back, to show them, nope, that's not the way to go. So James, for example, let's just say he wants to eat candy 24-7. And um, that's, that's it. And uh, can you explain to a, a four-year-old that, um, that it is good to eat green vegetables and that broccoli is good? And, I mean, you can give the best clear speech to a four-year-old about becoming strong and big and all of that. And after you're done, he'll say, now, can I have candy? All right. So uh, it very often does not work to rationalize and so on. And this is kind of the response you might get if you, if you ask, uh, now, please eat your broccoli. So, so you'll be creative as a parent and you will, let's try some other vegetables. Let's try some other things maybe. 
But um, yeah, I kind of have a messy face there. But anyway, uh, so you'll try to do all kinds of things, but eventually you may just have to uh, have, you know what, we're going to eat some other things besides candy. All right, so in his immaturity and his parents, the most loving thing to do, responsible thing to do, is you'll have some rules with lots of kindness and, you know, you try to get them going in the right direction. All right, but now let's just imagine here that here he lives in the home. And Dorothy and I, you know, we try to do all these things. He leaves home, let's say, goes off to college, and now he's free. Right, and he's free of that burdensome legal system that uh, had about eating a good diet, and now he goes back to eating candy 24/7, free of the law. Right? Is that what it means to be free of the law? Now, wouldn't it be sad if, um, well, let's say he went away to college, and um, he called from home and said, uh, uh, "You know, Dad, I wanted you to know I had two bites of broccoli today. Do you think I would be happy?" Uh, because, no, he's still under the reward punishment. Dad's happy if I eat the broccoli. He'll punish me if I don't. We, we don't punish if he doesn't eat broccoli. But anyway, you know that kind of reward punishment thing. That would be a very immature, no growth. Okay, might do it, but, you know, it's not sunk in that it's important. Or what if he called and said, you know what, I had two pieces of broccoli for dinner um, because I love you, Dad. Isn't that what God wants, that we do what is right because we love him? Now, that would still be pretty immature, wouldn't it? Because um, he has no reason for doing it, doesn't make sense, but I want to please Dad, and uh, so I'm going to do it anyway. What would be the most mature thing? Wouldn't it be that he grows up and says, you know what, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense to do this, and actually they taste pretty good now that I'm used to it. And You know, I mean, when it's sunk in, that is the law written on the heart. Not even that we do things... We don't understand why God has asked us to do things, but we do it because we love him. The highest goal is to do things because we agree with God. Okay, now I have to pick on Caleb here too. Okay, first graders do not want to do homework. Okay, we've learned that pretty quickly this year. And after a day at school and you tell them, all right, now let's, let's do your homework. And this is the kind of reaction. I'll have to delete these slides when they're old enough to look through the, and uh, discover them. But anyway... Um, so again, there need to be uh, rules that, no, you have to do your homework. And even at a first grade level, it does not make a lot of sense to them why it's important. But again, he goes away to college. Does he say, now I'm free. I'm done with that very burdensome, heavy legal system that my parents had me under all those years that said I had to study and do homework. And he proudly tells all of his classmates, I don't study, I'm free. Okay, no, the highest ideal would be that now he studies not because dad is going to punish or reward and not that he studies even because dad loves him. Now he studies because hopefully he enjoys it and it makes sense and he wants to be a good engineer or whatever it is. Oh, he does it because it makes sense. Okay, that is eventually we become free when we do what is right because it's what we want to do. Okay, then we're absolutely free. Okay, what about here at Mount Sinai? And remember how God came down and shook the mountain and the people were scared to death and we asked if he overdid it by coming down in great power and then remember that 40 days later they were dancing around a golden calf, that he really didn't scare them too much. But um, now just imagine here, what were the laws that he gave them? I remember the Ten Commandments, but we went through this list when we went through 
um, I think, Exodus, and uh, a list that included uh, don't sleep with your mother and don't sleep with animals in a horrible, horrible list of things. Now, which would suggest that people were doing all of those things at this time. But think about the other things in there, even the Ten Commandments. Would it be sad if, um, you know, instead of coming together and talking about the character of God, we had to get all the medical students together and say, uh, please stop killing one another. Uh, please stop stealing from your classmates. And all of the adultery that is going on in this class, I want it to stop. I mean, did, did God in... And I shouldn't use that example, but, but I, I, I'm just saying that uh, in, in heaven, before there was sin, did God need to bring the angels to Mount Sinai and say, don't kill, don't commit adultery? No, all of these things were added because of our great rebellion. Okay, It was added clearly so that we could see the right and the wrong way. So that is why I think the law that was added, we can include all law was added because of our rebellion and distrust. All right, so we have the Ten Commandments, but how sad would it be if a husband had to say, as his wife is off to work, please, just today, don't commit adultery. I mean, you can see how this was added because of a horrible, rebellious circumstance that was going on. Okay, so Paul goes on now to give clarifications about the law. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Okay, this is King James' version. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we're no longer under a schoolmaster. Now, this is very interesting here. Schoolmaster is a pretty good uh, translation of this, and I won't try to pronounce the Greek word here, but can you see kind of um, pediatrician coming out of this a little bit? And the, the definition of this word that they translate as schoolmaster is a boy leader. That is a servant whose office it was to take the children to school. And back in those days, there were more servants than there were free people. And the servants, uh, their job was to make sure that the kids got to school, make sure they didn't leave school, make sure that they got home safely from school. And so he uses this illustration of the law. And I thought it'd be interesting just to show how all the versions translate this. The law is in charge of us. A child custodian, because children need a custodian, a guardian, tutor, trainer. And there the old Rams Dewey, over 100 years old, the pedagogue. Okay, again, the, the child leader, the person who protects the child. And then finally, New Jerusalem Bible, slave, which I think would tie along with it, was a servant and a slave who did the work of the uh, schoolmaster, or the one to bring the child to school and back. So what's the point here? The the pedagogue here, the child custodian, is not the teacher. It is to bring us to the teacher, to make sure we get to the teacher and that we hear what the teacher has to say. Okay, so that's the purpose of the law. Now, here's the message translation, which I think, uh, again, you cannot translate the Greek into the message Bible. So he reads it and interprets it and, and so on, but this is a wonderful translation of these few verses here. Until the time when we were mature enough to respond freely in faith to the living God. Again, we grow up. We do what's right because it is right. Until that time, we were carefully surrounded and protected by the Mosaic law. The law was like those Greek tutors with which you are familiar, who escort children to school and protect them from danger or distraction, making sure the children will really get to the place they set out for. But now you have arrived at your destination 
by faith in Christ, you are in direct relationship with God. Okay, and just maybe we'll make it to school without having someone yank us out of bed and, and forcing us there, right? But now we've been brought to the teacher and we'll stay there. Okay, and, and have to make the point, the law kind of goes either way here. It shows us the ideal and it shows us how we deviate from the ideal. But notice how Paul concludes here in Romans. We don't think we read this verse, but be under obligation to no one. The only obligation you have is to love one another. Whoever does this has obeyed the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not commit murder, do not steal, do not desire what belongs to someone else. All these and any others besides are summed up in the one command. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you love others, you will never do them wrong. To love then is to obey the whole law. Because do you break any of the laws if you really love your neighbor? Hey, God wanted things to be very simple. Love me, love your neighbor. All right, but as we deviate further and further and further from that ideal, just like a parent, okay, you have to build up lots of protection, lots of rules and laws to show, hey, you're getting further and further away, to point out that we're getting further and further away. Okay, shall we say then that the law itself is sinful? Of course not. But it was the law that made me know what sin is. If the law had not said, do not desire what belongs to someone else, I would not have known such a desire. And it's interesting, in the Old Testament, there was a commandment for stoning, breaking of every single commandment except for the tenth one. And the tenth commandment starts out with, do not desire. Okay, which is really ultimately, don't even want to do something wrong. Okay, that is, that is the ultimate goal. But just like here, I think we discussed in Romans that the law, it's kind of like an MRI scan, in essence that you see, man, it's like uh, you don't know that you're doing anything wrong, all right? And you get this full body scan and you see, man, I've got cancer all over. It's incredible, all right? But it, I mean, isn't it the loving thing for God to do, though? If we have no idea that we're completely in a rebellious, disharmonious state with him, and we're not going to turn around and change unless we see that we are living in that way. Who is the law for? It must be remembered, of course, that laws are made not for good people, but for lawbreakers and criminals, for the godless and sinful, for those who are not religious or spiritual, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the immoral, for sexual perverts, for kidnappers, for those who lie and give false testimony or do anything else contrary to sound doctrine. Okay, the law is for rebels, okay, but God gave rebels a law to try to bring them back. And so I thought just as an illustration here, Okay, we have, uh, imagine this is a beautiful beach here and there are sharks out there and you can see them. But in, in our rebellious, disconnected state from God, we had actually come to the point where we were so confused about right and wrong that you would look at this and not see anything wrong. Well, let's go swimming in that beach. I mean, we're so delusional in that sense. All right, that we just didn't know that, that swimming here is wrong. And so God puts up a rule and there's a big sign, do not swim at this beach and maybe directions to a very beautiful beach on the other side of the island. But don't swim here at this beach. Okay, now one way of looking at this would be, ah, oh, burdensome rule. Look at this. God has put all of these rules here. Uh, we want to do this so badly. All right, but what happens here is we come closer and closer and closer to God and we see, you know what, this is a, I mean, the last thing in the world I want to do is go swimming in this beach. Right now it makes sense. I understand why God asked us not to do these things. 
And once we understand, we're free, right? I mean, you would walk by that beach, maybe you'd uh, enjoy looking at the sharks swimming around, but the last thing in the world you want to do is swim in the ocean that's infested with all these sharks. Okay, so again, when we come to see and be in agreement with God about what is right, we do what is right because it's what we want to do, then we are completely free. Now, I guess the other point here, I don't know how far to carry this analogy here with the sharks, but uh, it is sometimes implied that God has made up a list of things. They really don't make a whole lot of sense, but he asked us to do it, so we'll do it. And um, the penalty for not doing what God says is that God will destroy. God will get you if you break the rules. And I think the truth here is, and again in this analogy, is that the sharks do it, all right? Sin kills. Sin, which I think could best be defined as living in a rebellious, disconnected, distrustful relationship with God, is itself inherently destructive. Okay, God is trying to save us from the consequences of that, not to directly punish us if we decide to swim in this ocean. For no one is put right in God's sight by doing what the law requires. What the law does is to make us know that we have sinned. It is to sharpen our acuity of right and wrong. And remember David here saying so many times, I delight in the law, delight in the law. Would say this, I gain wisdom from your laws. Okay? Wisdom, understanding, what happens? And so I hate all bad conduct. It's become very clear to David. This is right, this is wrong. And of course we read all the bad things David did, but, um, but this... Uh, this acuity of God's way and a way that leads to destruction becomes very clear. In Romans again, well then if we emphasize faith or trust, does this mean that we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. In other words, the way to have a new heart and a right spirit and to do what is right is not to work on doing what is right. It is to come to God and to trust Him. And when we come to God and we trust Him, then it becomes a natural process. We do what is right because it is right and it's the most natural thing in the world. Now, on that point here in James, we'll talk about this a little bit on Saturday, but James says, do not deceive yourselves by just listening to His Word or the law. Instead, put it into practice. If you listen to the Word but you do not put it into practice, you are like people who look in a mirror and see themselves as they are. Remember, what's the law? The law shows us who we are. They take a good look at themselves and then go away at once and forget what they look like. But if you look closely into the perfect law that sets people free, now that's interesting. Have you ever thought about the law setting people free? If you look closely into the perfect law that sets people free and keep on paying attention to it and do not simply listen and then forget it but put it into practice, you will be blessed by God in what you do. Some of you may be familiar that uh, the law is a transcript of the character of God, which really is. All law is to bring us to love God, to love our neighbor. So we need to, when we think about the law, it is ultimately the law of the universe, the way God has designed things to operate, which is other-centered, love others, love others. That is all the law is supposed to teach us. Now, just as another example here, I put in conscience. Remember that uh, after sin, God said, I will make you and the woman hate each other. Her offspring and yours will always be enemies. And what do all of us have built in? Um, 
inside a sense of right and wrong. Now, that can be very warped, of course, by our experience. But um, I thought it was just interesting. I mean, you just look through kids' movies and other movies of villains, and they almost always have something in common. Um, angry, proud, selfish, arrogant, vengeful. Uh, I mean, you know, my four-year-old can spot out, oh, he's bad, you know, very, very quickly. All right? Our conscience, which God put in us to hopefully that we despise the way of rebellion and separation, this sense of right and wrong. C.S. Lewis writes about this in Mere Christianity, which is as evidence for God that we have this barometer somewhat of what is right and wrong. It's like the law. Okay? It's, it's internal. Now, the point that should be made, though, that our conscience can be so warped right, that we can, while serving God, be absolutely convinced that we're doing God's will by flying planes into buildings, praying to God and being sure that God is very, very happy with us as we're doing that. All right, so the problem with the separation further and further and further from what God is like, from the truth about God, is that our conscience gets completely flipped around. And this is what um, Jesus, when he talks about the sin of the Holy Spirit, when he talks about the sin of the Holy Spirit, it was when the Pharisees said, you are of the devil. And when we actually become so uh, twisted that we see what is true and we say, that's satanic. Uh, what can God do? And of course, what should really bring it to home for us is uh, here Fox's Book of Martyrs, but people thinking it is a good and wonderful thing to burn those people at the stake who would try to translate the Bible into the common language or um, and trusting that Jesus was very pleased with what they had done. So again, our conscience we must be coming closer and closer to the truth and we can be sincerely going the wrong direction so that our conscience is completely flipped around. Okay, but law, everything that God has done is meant to teach us, bring us closer to truth. And what is, what is it that focuses us in on truth? I think it is the truth about God as revealed by Jesus. That is the brightest light that brings everything into focus. Well, uh, I'm going to skip over a couple slides here just because... Um, I'm a little behind, but let's just finish up here with the end of Galatians. And Paul says, but now that you know God, or should I say, now that God knows you, how is it that you want to turn back to those weak and pitiful ruling spirits? Why do you want to become their slaves all over again? Um, so many times, this to know. There it is again, that we know God. It's an intimate relationship. That's what it's all about, not about keeping a list. This, uh, this section in Galatians 5, after making all of this point about law and versus trust in God, ultimately it is about freedom. Freedom is what we have. Christ has set us free. Stand then as free people and do not allow yourselves to become slaves again. Listen, I, Paul, tell you that if you allow yourselves to be circumcised, it means that Christ is of no use to you at all. Once more, I warn any man who allows himself to be circumcised that he is obliged to obey the whole law those of you who try to be put right with God by obeying the law have cut yourselves off from Christ. You're outside of God's grace. As for us, our hope is that God will put us right with him, and that is what we wait for by the power of God's Spirit working through our faith. And uh, next verse here in Galatians, For if we are in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith, trust, trust, activated, energized, and expressed and working 
through love. Now, the Amplified Bible amplifies things, okay? So we get one word, and it'll explode it into a whole lot of meaning. But, so we don't use it that often here. But here's a good example. What is it that activates, energizes, expresses? What, what is it that is, brings us our trust? It is love, God's love, who God is. That's the, stable, that's the energy force for our trust in God. Use your freedom. How do we use our freedom? To serve one another in love. That's how freedom grows. For everything we know about God's word is summed up in a single sentence. Love others as you love yourself. That's an act of true freedom. If you bite and ravage each other, watch out. In no time at all, you'll be annihilating each other. And where will your precious freedom be then? Again, our world now operates under survival of the fittest. Me, 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 preserve me. Where I'm willing to kill you to preserve me. I mean, that's, that's the way our world operates. Okay, we have to break out of that and love others. It's a scary thing to do, to become other-centered. But that's what God calls us to do. My counsel is this. Live freely, animated and motivated by God's Spirit. Then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness, self-centeredness. For there is a root of sinful self-interest in us that is at odds with a free spirit, just as the free spirit is incompatible with selfishness. These two ways of life are antithetical. So you cannot live at times one way and at other times another way, according to how you feel on any given day. Why don't you choose to be led by the spirit and so escape the erratic compulsions of a law-dominated existence? So he's describing here to break out of this. I mean, once we've come to as Paul would say, crucify self and love others, we are completely free. God's Spirit makes us loving, happy, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. There's no law against behaving in any of these ways. And if this is how we want to live, we really are free. And because we belong to Christ Jesus, we've killed our selfish feelings and desires. God's Spirit has given us life, and so we should follow the Spirit. Now, the last verse here. As for me, God forbid that I should boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Greatest revelation of what God is like. Because of that cross, my interest in this world died long ago and the world's interest in me is also long dead. It doesn't make any difference now whether we have been circumcised or not. What counts is, and I won't go around and ask you what counts, okay? But for Paul, this is what counts. What counts is whether we really have been changed into new and different people. Again, this is not perfection, but if the love of God, if the gospel does not change us into loving people who are other-centered, then it is a message that does not have power. It is meant to work within us and to change us. May God's mercy and peace be upon all those who live by this principle, which he just described, the other-centered, unselfish, principle, service principle. They are the new people of God and as other versions, they are the real Jew. So I think Paul here is just describing here and, and even in today, we have two spectrums here where some people would say even very much, it is about the law. I heard someone in my church say, I really believe that if we just keep the seventh day Sabbath, then everything will be fine. Okay, now I'm not diminishing the importance of that at all, but what is it all about through the Bible? It's about knowing God. All right, let's pray. 
Dear Father, please help us to come into this truth about you. Help us to be other-centered, not because we're working to be that way, but because we are friends and we trust you and we have come to love and admire so much who you are and the way that you've designed this universe to operate. Amen.